So we are moving through Jesus' most famous teachings called the Sermon on the Mount, and we started last fall. And as Delia read, we're reading out of the Gospel of Matthew, and it's the same Matthew that was one of Jesus' disciples. And in all probability, the Sermon on the Mount wasn't simply just preached on one occasion, probably over a course of time. And through a lot of conversations with Matthew and Jesus, he has this like ensemble of Jesus' most like essential, important teachings. And so again, Matthew's record of the Sermon on the Mount, it kind of captures the demands, the responsibilities, the roles of men and women who apprentice to Jesus, what it means to practice the way of Jesus. And what that means is a totally different way of life. And so it's vital for for Jesus to ensure that his disciples, you and myself, um, to understand what it looks like to pick up our cross and follow him. And so to reiterate, when Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount, it it was always directed towards his disciples. And so like, yes, the crowds were welcome, the randos are welcome to join in, but The essence and core of Jesus' teachings, what we have here is directed to people that have made an intentional decision to follow Jesus, to call themselves a Christian. And so again, the Christian life, according to the Sermon on the Mount, is holistic and all-encompassing of life. It's not just a Sunday thing, it's an everyday type of thing. Um, And so just to recap our series, Sermon on the Mount, a little bit, because we've started in September, um, The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teachings naturally is quite disturbing to our human nature. Why? Because it exposes the depths of our selfishness, of our pride, all the ways in which we are shaped by the world. It reveals our sinful nature. And so if you would consider yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, the danger for us The danger is that the teachings of Jesus can become so familiar to us that they lose their power in our lives. Not because of the deficiency of Jesus' words, but the shock and conviction it has on our souls. A quote I've shared uh, a few times now uh, as we are moving through the Sermon on the Mount is from a Jewish rabbi, and I feel like he captures some of the underlying tensions for followers of Jesus in relation to the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what he says. The history of Christianity is the story of Christians trying to evade the Sermon on the Mount and avoiding living according to its plain meaning. The moment Jesus' words do not bother us or lead us to like conviction is the moment that Jesus has ceased to be the Lord of our life. Anyways, in today's teaching, we're going to look at, uh, like what Delia read, um, verses 22 to 26. And there's three segments. The first part, 21 to 22, is a redefinition of murder. Um, 23 to 24 is an exhortation to reconciliation. And the last bit, 25 to 26, is a repetition of that exhortation that results in a warning. So we'll jump into the first part. Verse 21. You have heard it. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. 
And so here, Jesus, what he has in mind and what he's actually referencing is Exodus 20, 13 and Deuteronomy 5, 17, which are, uh, again, just the recordings of the OG, the original like commandments, specifically the six, which is do not murder. Um, and so in Jesus' context uh, for the Jews, uh, with, with, I think, yeah, 613 commandments that were given to the Israelites long ago in the wilderness, Mount Sinai. What the context that Jesus has in mind for murder refers to intentional manslaughter. However, here, what Jesus is trying to unpack is what's behind murder, namely the desire and the intent that leads to that heinous action, which is anger. And so Jesus gives an example of what getting angry is. And so he kind of gives this kind of like almost random example. It's like when you call someone raka, right? I don't know. This is the only time in the New Testament that we actually see this word raka. Um, it's not like a beatboxing vibe. Like raka, raka. It's not that. Raka. Um, surprisingly, it's actually like how it would be defined is like you fool or empty headed. Um, but in this context, especially for the Pharisees, religious leaders, this would have actually been more of a forbidden term, almost like a derogatory term. So it's really something that you really should not say. And so again, it's an Aramaic word um, that could be understood as fool or an idiot. Um, and so Jesus here is specifying that the consequences for this type of anger that results in you name calling and putting someone down um, is equivalent to judgment, a judgment that leads to the fire of hell. Zero to 100 real quick. It almost seems like grossly disproportionate between the prerequisite to the sin, which is anger, because anger in itself is not a sin, but it's like that prerequisite like constitutes the consequences, which is very intense. It's punishment, fire of hell. I have a core memory from when I was in grade two. Um, and I don't know if, if, I'll just give you maybe three seconds to just think who I am here. Anyone just take a guess? Where, Elise? Tate, I was showing Tate, where are you, bro? Okay, I gave you a chance to look at this. What, what color am I wearing? Left side glasses, okay. Mom, who am I? What color, what color am I wearing, Mom? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, well, Mom, you're wrong. I'm not wearing glasses. I'm wearing red Gap sweater. That's okay, Mom. I still love you. Anyways, um, so... This, uh, this picture uh, is actually when I was in grade three, but this core memory that I'm going to talk about is in grade two. And it was a split class. It was grade two, three. And I remember this is back in the day when we got our desk clumps, table groups, right? And, um, you know, this is also back in the day when, like, our teachers used overhead projectors, right? We remember that. And so um, in my desk clump, they were, like, they were kind of, like, I don't know, like, I'm not the bad kids, but, like, a little bit rambunctious, right? I'm, like, the, the quiet, sheltered kid that just got placed with them. And so they're kind of, like, as our teacher is, like, teaching and writing on the overhead projector, they're kind of flinging, like, a pencil crayon at each other. And so they would fling it, and then they would, you know, would hit their chest, and they just catch it right away. And so they would do it when the teacher wasn't looking. And I'm just trying to behave. I'm just trying to learn whatever our teacher is teaching. And then all of a sudden, they, like, throw it at me 
ricochets off my chest, hits the desk, and then I quickly grab it because it made a sound. But I was too late. Teacher stands up, like yells all of our names, all four of us, and says, detention, two weeks. Dude, two weeks, grade two. I was also a victim, so obviously I'm treated very poorly here. But I still feel like that punishment, even for like my classmates, was still pretty severe. Like we're just throwing it, maybe give us like a day. Okay, fine, week max, but two weeks. Like I remember, it's such a core memory because I remember sitting inside for two weeks, not allowed to play outside. I feel like grade two is like essential in like your formation as like a child and boy. And that was taken from me. Is this how Jesus is treating anger? Such a almost like disproportionate, ridiculous consequences for what does not seem like a big deal. It's, but it's important to understand that angry thoughts or in the context that Jesus is teaching, insulting words may never lead us obviously to the ultimate act of murder, but in the eyes of the Lord, it's still equivalent. And so the apostle John writes this in 1 John three fifteen: anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. Yikes. And you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. I'm sure there's lots of people thinking, Jer, I don't hate anybody. I just strongly dislike. It's not the same thing. I am exempt from this teaching. In actuality, um, it's probably important to define what anger is, right? Get on the same page. Google defines it as this, a strong feeling of annoyance, displeasure, or hostility. Um, But on a deeper level, it's probably more like this spontaneous feeling that engulfs our mind and our body. Our heart rate increases. Our muscles tense up. Palms sweaty, knees weak, arms are heavy, right? We just, we start feeling some type of way. But is all anger bad? Is all anger bad? It's important to note that there are different types of anger. There's anger that comes from uh, seeing, experiencing injustice. There's anger that can result from emotional pain, things that were wrongfully done to you. There's anger uh, that we experience when we're trolled too hard, right? Um, There's different types of anger. And so anger in itself is not necessarily a sin. Um, There are scenarios when anger is actually the appropriate response particularly to evil. And Jesus himself gets angry on more than one occasion. Matthew 21, verse 12. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves! Exclamation point. But when Jesus gets angry, it's never about himself. It's always on the account of others. The Apostle Paul expands on this more in his letter to the believers. In Ephesus, in Rome, he says this, Ephesians 4, 23, let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth for we are all part of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. For anger gives a foothold to the devil. Does Jesus command us, his disciples, never to get angry? No. 
That is not what he's saying. It would be literally impossible to not get angry. Anger is an emotion. It is not an action. It's very important to distinguish those two things. And the reality is, you know, sometimes we really can't control our emotions, right? Situation happens, circumstances, and we just feel a type of way. And we can't control our emotions, but we can influence them. Influence them. There are two Greek words um, for anger that are used throughout the New Testament. And again, the manuscripts, the original manuscripts in the New Testament are in Greek. And there's two words that are used. The first is thumos, which is like a quick flare-up of anger, right? It's like you're playing Fortnite, you just get killed right away. Ah! Right? Quick flare-up anger, thumos. The second Greek word is orgizo. Orgizo. And this is the word that is used in this context. And this, this type of anger, or gizo anger, is a deeper anger. It's a brooding. It's a replaying of the offense in your mind over and over again. And again, this is what is used in the text. And more specifically, it's used as a present participle. So if you did not pay attention in English 10, let me remind you what uh, a present participle is. Um, so again, orgizo, Greek word used here, and it's in the verb form. Verb, action word, I-N-G. For example, I'm eating, I'm sleeping, I'm watching anime, okay? I-N-G, action word, verb, that is what Jesus is using here. So what he's actually saying is whoever is nursing a grudge, whoever is just fanning the flames, the, 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 the flames of anger, that's what he's trying to say. And Jesus actually gets very specific here. It's nursing a grudge at a brother or sister in your church community. Jesus, mic drop. And so if you are angry, resentful, bitter towards a fellow brother and sister in Christ. This is Jesus' words, not my own. He's saying you will be subject to judgment, the same judgment of that as a murderer, intense. The late theologian John Stott describes the anger that Jesus is getting at in the following way. He says this, anger and insults are ugly symptoms of a desire to get rid of somebody who stands in our way. Our thoughts, looks, words all indicate that as we sometimes dare to say, we wish he were dead. Such an evil wish is a breach of the sixth commandment, which is do not murder. And it renders the guilty person liable to the very penalties to which the murderer exposes himself, not in each case literally in a human law court, but before the bar of God. Anger towards another human being. And in this particular scenario, as Jesus unpacks, Someone who belongs to your same church community is just as criminal and heinous as the act of murder. And we really feel the brevity of this statement in that last sentence in verse 22. And anyone who says, you fool, raka, fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And so the word hell in English can actually be quite misleading. Um, when we hear the word hell in English, um, there's a lot that's attached to it because of, uh, again, secular ideas and images. But the word, the Greek word used here for hell is the word Gehenna. Gehenna. 
And for the first century readers in this context, for, for these Jews that were hearing Jesus' words at this time, Valley of Hell, Gehenna. Gehenna was a reference to a very real place. It wasn't just this idea. It was actually a reference to a real place, which is the south side of Jerusalem, which is uh, behind me here. Um, and that is very important context to understand because I think for most Western Christians, we don't have that context. And so in ancient Israel's history, when they were, um, again, it started with Saul, David, Solomon, which was the united monarchy. And then things got really wagged, disagreements, everybody hated each other. And Israel ended up splitting with Judah. They were doing wicked in the eyes of the Lord. And so it was at this time when, when, the, when the Hebrews were not following and honoring God's law. There was, there was a time in their history where people were sacrificing their children to false gods. They were doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And uh, if you read on the history of uh, Israel and Judah's um, kingship, uh, king Josiah, shout out Josiah, you're named after this man's bro. Uh, king Josiah came into power and it was during his kingship that he brings nationwide reform, so good, um, to the people of Judah. He's trying to bring people back to the Lord, the ways of Yahweh. Second Kings 23.10, he desecrated Tophath, which was, the, which was in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. Ben-Hinnom, same thing um, as Gehenna. So no one could use it as a sacrifice to sacrifice their son or daughter in the fire, in the fire to Moloch, which was a false god. And like I just said, Ben Hinnom means valley of hell, which is the same reference in verse 22. Gehenna, fire of hell. Ben Hinnom, Gehenna, hell, fire of hell, valley of hell. These are all the same things. Ben Hinnom was on the south side of Jerusalem. Gehenna, south side of Jerusalem. And so by the time of Jesus' day, as he's saying this in the first century, that area, that south side of Jerusalem, most um, historians, theologians believe that at that point in time, it probably became a garbage dump. Like people, because they didn't have like, uh, like sewers and a whole infrastructure to get rid of waste and garbage. So they would just throw it on the south side of Jerusalem. And so it became a garbage dump. And what they would do was burn the garbage. Pause. Imagine that. Just garbage everywhere, burning. Imagine what it looks like, what it smells like. And so as Jesus is teaching and saying Gehenna, it's invoking a certain imagery, a place of feeling for people that were listening. And over time, this valley became a metaphor for judgment, for the judgment to come. So whether as a first century Jew or a 21st century Vancouverite, Again, it's easy to hear this teaching and think like, ah, oh, it's not a big deal if I call someone raka or insert whatever word you wanna use. But in actuality, this anger that you carry in your heart that might not ever manifest into anything is still a very big deal in the eyes of God. The Apostle Paul even names anger as the first thing to rid of, to get rid of as a follower of Jesus in his letter to the believers in, uh, in, Coloss in Colossians 3. Uh, he says this in verse 8, but now you must also rid yourself of such things as these. Anger, first one listed, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. What we don't, um, I think, realize or often forget is that as a follower of Jesus, our relationship with God is often tied to the relationships, our relationships with other people. 
They're tied, they're influenced, they're impacted, they're woven together. And so maybe you're here and you're not at peace with someone. Maybe you are nursing a grudge. And according to Jesus, you're not at peace with the Lord himself. Let's keep reading verse 23. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has, some, has, has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. And so Jesus is telling these first century disciples that reconciliation with a brother or sister, someone that's part of your church community, um, literally takes precedence than offering a sacrificial gift in the temple. Again, and that would have been like repenting, like asking for forgiveness. And so again, Jesus is not saying if you have something against someone. He's not saying that. He actually goes a step further. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying if someone has something against you, not if you're nursing a grudge, if someone has a grudge against you, go deal with it. How crazy is that? Um, hypothetical scenario. Um, like I mentioned earlier, like for us as a church community, we create space to receive communion. Um, for those that would like to participate, it's, it's getting right with God, experiencing his grace, forgiveness, all the good things. So hypothetical scenario, we're moving through communion and I'm like, okay, you know, just kind of readying myself, all that stuff. And then thought comes into my mind, oh, um, I totally canceled. I've been canceling and bailing on Ata when he invites me to play Fortnite. I, he's choked at me. Uh, what Jesus is actually saying is that before I can even receive communion, I got to walk to the back and be like, hey, bro, I'm so sorry that I bailed. That's on me. Um, can you forgive me? That is the level that Jesus, the bar of what it means to follow Jesus starts at the heart. It's being above reproach. What Jesus is calling me to do is make that relationship right. Apprenticing to Jesus should result in a life filled with reconciled relationships. And when we think about, okay, how can we really reach a city? Like that, that, that idea, it seems so big. It begins with reconciled relationships. And nothing expresses God's kingdom breaking in than people experiencing peace, reconciliation, and joy. Let's read the last bit, verse 25. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and then the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. And so Jesus provides another hypothetical scenario and highlights the importance of dealing with your conflict or relational bro brokenness quickly. There's a, a, an urgency. There's a, there's, a, there's a time frame given. And so maybe just to prompt reflection, when was the last time you had friction, conflict with someone? How did you deal with it? Um, I think more often than not, most of us, we don't deal with it because we're conflict averse. And you probably ignore it. And then it festers. It's on this low simmer, just... Not quite boiling, but you see a few bubbles. Does that ever help? Often the conflict gets worse. Often it begins to change your perspective, how you view that person. Always gets worse the longer you choose to not deal with it. 
And what Jesus is saying here, if you wanna break that vicious cycle of anger, maybe you're like, I'm just, I wanna experience peace, but for whatever reason, I'm not experience, experiencing it. I'm trying all the things. I'm coming to like a church service, like all these things. Jesus is saying like, hey, before you like offer your gift, before you come to church things and do all the things, like, re like find reconciliation in the relationships around you because your relationship with God is tied to relationships with others. You need to make peace with others first. And so if you're at odds with someone, and only you know who you're at odds with, Jesus is inviting you to make peace. Who do you need to make peace with today? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. And despite all the mistakes that we make, perhaps people in our lives that we have maybe wrongfully treated. Um, Lord, there's so much grace still for us, Lord. And even though in this teaching, Lord, you, you kind of set the bar for, again, how serious you, you look at the heart. Um, in light of that, we just worship you and give thanks for the cross, Lord, that you have already forgiven us, that we are already reconciled to you. And so Holy Spirit, as a church community, I pray, Lord, maybe, maybe there are certain faces or people that you've kind of just brought to mind. Lord, I pray that you would give us peace, boldness, and a confidence to be able to bring reconciliation there, to restore relationships around us. Lord, I pray that we would be a people of your presence, a people of reconciliation, a beatitude type people. And so Lord, we just recognize we don't always know what we're doing and we make lots of mistakes along the way. But we thank you, Lord, that you were so patient with us, that you were compassionate, you were slow to anger and rich in love. And so Lord, for all of us, may you provide whatever portion that is needed, the energy, clarity of mind, um, maybe even the right words, the right timing, the right situations, Lord, um, to bring reconciliation. Lord, we love you. We worship you. We pray this in your name.